Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Hey, Richard, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's always good to have you here. So the first question I want to know is, where are you at the moment? So right now I am in Rochester, Minnesota. So is it? It's not snowing or anything, right? I mean, it's probably <laughs> not yet. Not yet today. I mean, who knows what's going to happen? But currently, I believe it's seventy-five degrees and it's it's nice and sunny. Good day. Okay, that's a good day. So you should be going out sometime soon. Okay, so there's a lot we can talk about, right? You've had immense career. Maybe for our audience, give them a rundown of your career. I think then when we get through the topics, when they discuss, they get a sense of the source of your knowledge. Yeah, sure. So I'm an emergency physician here at Mayo Clinic in, in Minnesota. And I guess we, we go back. So I went to medical school at Mayo, at Mayo Medical School. Yeah. And that was in 1990 to 1994. And then I went and did a residency in emergency medicine, and that took four years. Yeah. And then beyond there, so I went into practice. So basically, I was an emergency physician in an emergency department um, in California. And what I found was taking care of patients one by one um, started. There were things that were frustrating at times, um, yeah. processes that didn't seem to be going right, um, you know, things that were opportunities to improve care. And then was asked to step into leadership positions. And so then became, uh, through over the course of time, department chair of, of the emergency department and managing partner of the group. Somewhere in there, ended up getting an MBA. And so I would travel to Texas, University of, of Tex uh, Texas at Dallas um, every couple months as part of the MBA program. Um, and during that process, learned about coaching. Yeah. I'd always thought of coaching as being the sort of thing where, you know, people really be like, how are you feeling? And you'd be talking yeah, about yeah. feelings and things like that. <laughs> but what I also, what I, I found was an opportunity to think about how we think and how to help each other be most effective in, in the way we're thinking, kind of making sense of the world, which was, was very helpful for me. Um, and so during that time, uh, I, then I became president of the medical staff. Uh, I started up a, a, an organization where we contracted a whole bunch of physicians to contract with insurers to take care of populations of patients. Yeah. And also in line with that was coaching physician, nursing, administrative leaders uh, throughout, throughout the United States. Um, had a conversation with one of my former MBA professors after one of the talks I gave, and he said, what would you like to do? And I said, you know what I'd love to do is go back to Mayo Clinic, yeah. but I, I don't know anyone anymore. It's been a while. You know, you look at LinkedIn and you wonder how do I connect? Yeah. <laughs> and, and he said, you know what? Actually the chief HR officer is one of my friends. Let me introduce you to her. And so I had a conversation with her and then ended up back here at Mayo Clinic as in the emergency department where I, I care for patients. I, I work tomorrow and I, I worked yesterday in the emergency department. And then also um, I coach leaders, uh, both internally and also at partners and, and, and the uh, director for leadership development for our care network, where we have organizations throughout the world that partner uh, with us for uh, knowledge management and, and um, 
coaching and leadership development and technology and process development and those sorts of things. And, and now I sit here before you. So that's an interesting career. I want to see if I understand this jump correctly. You started off as a doctor, and then you progressively went up into leadership roles, whereby you were part of what we would call the management team. And then you asked to go back to being a frontline doctor. Did I get that understanding correct? Yeah, so this was all occurring, and it's all in parallel. So at each point, I'm an emergency physician, um, yeah. you know, by day, I guess. Yeah. And then I guess actually more appropriately, I'm an emergency physician by night, by night. and then an administrator by day, uh, you know. So it was one of these things where as you're working clinically, um, you're taking care of patients, but yes. then from the administrative perspective, taking care of populations of patients. And do you feel that makes you better? The fact that you're dealing with patients while you're being an administrator? So I don't know if better is the right word. Um, it is nice to um, be a part of the system. You know, the, the concept of Gemba, you know, going to the floor and seeing how things are, are working. Yeah. It's certainly quite helpful to be taking care of patients, to be seeing what's working, what's not working, um, and then bringing that back then into the administrative perspective of how can we as we step back and look at the system, how do we, we create a system which really helps us to provide better care? The reason I ask that is because it's a very rare, and in fact, I've never actually seen it, where a leader wants to take an active role serving customers while being a leader. Because I used to be a senior partner in management consulting and I served a lot of banks. I don't think I've ever met a CEO who ever told me he went to a branch on a Friday just to serve customers so that he could see what worked. And as you said, bring it back and make adjustments. It's very rare. Is that common in the medical world? Yeah, there's going to be, I mean, there's going to be a spectrum there. I mean, certainly there are individuals who, as they go into administration, that becomes their job. One of the things that attracted me to Mayo Clinic is that really um, throughout levels of leadership, for the most part, our, our leaders are still taking care of patients. There are a few yes. exceptions. The CEO is no longer taking care of patients right now, but previous CEOs um, would go back to taking care of patients. And as we have department chairs and as we have individuals who are involved with really large organizational um, developmental and administrative roles, many of them are still taking care of patients. Okay, so it's common in the medical world. Not everyone does it, but it's more common than I'd say it's in the business world. Correct. Correct. Yeah, and I guess again, it depends. If you're talking about sea level, less common. Yeah. If you're talking common. about um, levels below that, uh, more common. And and that actually can tend to be a difficulty because oftentimes you will have physician. For instance, as I was a president of the medical staff, I was still taking care of patients, and then you find physicians in a leadership position who are. Um, yes, you have this administrative role, role but you still have uh, patients you have to care for. You have operations that need to go on. You have these other things that you need to um, take care of from, a, from the patient perspective. And how do you balance the two? So I'm going to shift gears and focus on the COVID period, when I'm assuming you were working and managing everything and so on. What was it like during that time? What did you learn? What was different? Yeah, I mean, the, the difficulty, I think, and we can all identify with this is where you're in a situation with something that is emerging that we don't know what what is going to happen. I mean, is this place of unknown yes. unknowns? Um, uh, initially, is this virus, does it mean anything? Because we've all heard about viruses that are all breaking in different parts of the world. And is this going to touch us or is this something that's going to remain local there? 
Um, and then let's say it starts to touch us. Is it going to be something that's going to be, um, you know, something that's causing a lot, a lot of morbidity and mortality, or is it something that's like a common cold? Yes. Um, and then as we get into this and we, we start to see that this is a very serious disease, um, how do we adjust our organizations in the moment? Um, we, we find that the, the supply chain is disrupted. We find that things that we used to think were just there, kind of just in time, yes. are no longer there. And how do we do it, adapt to that? How do we look at some of the um, the barriers that we have externally? I mean, there, there are things that are going on in the market. There are things that are going regulatory uh, on the regulatory level. Um, and how do we adapt with those? And in addition, internally, now we have people who are, are, are taking care of patients who are becoming patients. And how do we adapt to those moments? And how do we adapt our algorithms for how we're taking care of patients? Just it's just this whole um, the system where we're having to to um, crisis after crisis react uh, in the moment and 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 move on and provide care. So let's unpack that a little bit, right? Mm. What did it change in the way the doctors and the nurses are being managed when COVID came along? What had to be done differently? Because my take on this is what I've only seen in the newspapers about the difficulties physicians face dealing with COVID, but I've never actually spoken to any doctor who was on the front lines. Yeah, and I and as first, I, I think it's quite similar to what everyone was experiencing, and so yeah. the, the the data data operations still needed to go on, um, and yet we are having to re to respond to this crisis, and so the way we're making decisions in crisis mode is quite different from the way we're usually making decisions as we're going about our, our um, you know, kind of business and administrative lives. And so as COVID is uh, coming in and we're hearing about this emerging uh, very ser serious illness that's affecting the system, you have leaders who have to step up and make decisions and they're having to make decisions without having all the knowledge that you'd love to have in, a, in the usual environment, without being able to um, you know, kind of have committees and, and task forces yes. to look at this and, and bring us back this this nice, you know, kind of grand perspective and then make decisions based on that. And so in each department, in each division, um, at, each, or at each organizational level, um, leaders are having to step up uh, in times of crisis and, and make decisions. And that means that they do have to make decisions. And so that, and they're dealing with an kind of an inadequate uh, database. You know, they don't have all the information they want, which is uncomfortable. Um, yeah. And they're having to look forward and try to try to think about based on this decision, what might happen based on if I make this decision, what might that happen? And, and, and then just decide that tends to be less common um, within healthcare where you're wanting to more often have a more collaborative approach. Yes. And, bring many together. And so uh, there was a bit of growth there for some and for others, it was quite natural just to step up and, and make those decisions. And do you feel there were some things that you've done or your team done, or you've seen the medical world do differently that should be applied to general business more? So is there some things that the medical world is doing differently, either through COVID or just the principles and the way hospitals are managed that could be taken into the general business world? Um, I'll just, I can speak to how, how we responded and I think how we responded quite well is you have this um, serious crisis that's going on. And so leaders at all levels each have their areas of expertise and 
then there are also areas that are outside of their expertise. And so, for example, our CEO was making some decisions that were quite appropriate from that from that level. But on the other hand, um, our CEO, while being a physician, isn't an infectious disease specialist. And so yes. delegating specific um, decisions to areas of expertise and supporting those areas to make those decisions, all the while understanding that these decisions are just responses to crisis and that some of the decisions might not work as we would have planned, but yet we're in an environment that is quite difficult to plan for. And so then to be able to see how the system responds, to be able to um, kind of learn and discover new data and bring that in and make decisions. So, so I think that medicine generally is quite good at that sort of a consultation where as an emergency physician, I can take care of really anyone who comes in the emergency department at any time. Yes. That being said, um, if a patient then I see has a heart attack, I'm not taking care of that patient. I'm going to be moving that on to the cardiologist. If the next patient comes in with a broken bone, I'll be cons consulting orthopedists. And so it's uh, this kind of trade-off of our own expertise uh, in those moments, I think did help us, this, this interplay that we have. So you mentioned two things, yeah, which I want to explore. The first one is this ability to, as you use the example, if you're CEO, the ability to know what you don't know and bring in the expert needed to help you make that decision. That's one thing, right? Mm -hmm. The second thing is, given the kind of environment you work in, you know, you've got all kinds of traumatic things happening. How do you keep calm in that situation? Because nobody else is keeping calm, certainly not the patient. How do you make decisions and calm the environment. It's an interesting thing for me because I have a lot of clients in finance and they always tell me about what's happening when they lose a trade or something goes wrong. And it would be interesting to know how you manage that. Yeah, so I mean, you think of emergency medicine as being uh, basically a specialty of crisis. A specialty where, of crisis, I like that. Yeah, but it isn't necessarily that. I mean, I know, so tomorrow I'm going to be working okay. uh, and I am going to be seeing patients with chest pain. And I just don't know the names of those patients yet. I'm going to be seeing uh, patients who've had car accidents. I'm going to be seeing patients with abdominal pain. I don't know their names, um, but I know I'm going to be seeing that. And so while it seems like it's unexpected, actually, as I'm at work, it all falls within my area of expertise. And so I'm quite comfortable with, and that's my part of the training as becoming a doctor and then becoming an emergency physician is these, these things that if I were as a a thrown into the uh, operating room um, to take care of someone's gallbladder out. For me, that would be a moment of crisis. I don't know yeah. how to take someone's gallbladder out. <laughs> On the other hand, if you take that surgeon and you put them into the emergency department with someone who's having a heart attack, that would be a moment of crisis for them. And so yes. I think we can all relate to that. If I were on your end right now trying to put a podcast together, that would be a moment of crisis for me. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> so, I, yeah. That so it's about perspective. It's about you know you're going into this environment. You also understand the support system you have. Mm -hmm. And you have the ability to tap into that. Correct. And that's an interesting way to think about it because, you know, whenever I speak to um, lawyers, for example, I always want to know what is your area of specialization of law? Are you a corporate lawyer, securities lawyer, litigation lawyer? You know, there's so many things, but when the layman thinks about a lawyer, they think a lawyer can solve every problem. It's the same for a doctor. A doctor has a specialization. They specialize in that, and they know who to bring in. I suppose it's like any 
team in any business environment. You've got to have all of the components and a system that encourages you and incentivizes you to bring the right people in. So going back to your time managing these things and so on, you've obviously had to go through multiple crises of any number of sort. How do you get people to be on the same page? I feel that's the hardest thing when there's limited information, because you've got different opinions. You've got one group saying, well, this is maybe more important. How do you get people to bind to a common vision here? Yeah, so I think there's probably multiple um, kind of things that come up here. So one is, are we on the same page? And I think that it really, you can go back to organizational mission and values. And so we are all together here at this organization with a mission. Um, and, you know, for us, we want to meet the needs of patients. And then we have values. And so during yes. crisis, these, this, these things are really essential. I mean, we have this common uh, mission. We have these common values. And these are the things that are going to keep us together. And during these crises, um, we're, we're going to really um, leverage that as we move forward. So I think that's one thing. I think an, another thing is for the leaders to admit what they don't know. Um, and, and also as they're finding information to be sharing that information. And so we're not sure what's going on in terms of this particular yes. crisis, um, but we know that we need to take care of patients, for example, and we're going to do that with our values. This is what we know, this is what we don't know, this is how we're going to proceed. Um, and as much as possible, um, help those that you're working with your colleagues to be able to uh, inform those um, inform that data and then also be able to share in the knowledge that you have let's go up to the early days of COVID. right mm -hmm. there was some information coming out but people didn't know what was going on so you've got this data and you've got some tremendously smart colleagues around you who are experts in their own field everyone's looking at the same data but they're all interpreting the data differently and because of the interpretation, they want to move in different directions, act in different ways, prioritize things differently. How do you get a unified vision yeah. given that different interpretation? So during these times of crisis, and there is lots of data, and, and one of the, the actually benefits about having teams of individuals looking at that data are that there are different interpretations of that data. Um, in fact, disagreements about that data and those disagreements are part of our shared perspectives. I mean, within those disagreements, we start to see um, that maybe things aren't kind of binary. It's, it's not either this or that, yes. that it's less dichotomous. It's more dialectical. There are more yes. possibilities. There are more, um, you know, so it's less probability. It's more possibilities. And so as we get teams of individuals with different perspectives uh, around this, this data, all those varied interpret or interpretations are what helps us to decide what the next step is. Understanding that during these times of crisis, that what we're we're looking to affect change on one hand, we're serving to we're looking to to serve our mission and our values, and 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 for Mayo Clinic to serve the needs of patients. Um, but on the other hand, we're also looking to get more data. We're looking to see how the situation evolves, and we're looking to do that together with different perspectives. Um, all trying to help each other look around our blind spots. And so I, I think that relationship with data is not something that is this or that, not yes. something that is binary, but these are things that inform us within our agreements and disagreements about what is existing out there and how we, how we might respond. And I think a good way to think about it would be to say that 
your response, we can use COVID as an example because it's a well-known example, but the response that your team had during COVID is a function of the investment made months and years before to build strong relationships with the team members, right? Correct. If that wasn't there, there was no respect, there was no appreciation of what everyone brought to the table, I don't think you'd be able to work well in a crisis. Yeah, and that being said, um, there are teams that emerged that had never existed before. And there were, yes. there, and from there, this the, uh, an esprit de corps is formed. And, you know, one of the benefits, um, the positives, as you look at, at those times of crises, can be individuals who have not been together coming together um, and really bringing something together that may not have existed six months before um, during the, the routine. Well, that's actually a very interesting point. And I want to explore that for the audience, because what often happens when you've got a team that's been working together for a long time, team members take on roles. They may not even be aware they've taken on a role where someone is the person who always puts forward the main idea, the other one supports it, doesn't support it, the other one counsels and so on. But when a team comes together for the first time, you don't have predetermined roles. And it gives you an opportunity to speak up in some cases and do things you may never have done. And I've actually seen that myself and also coaching executives and so on. Oftentimes when you're coaching, for example, a CEO, he's got a certain role he plays. But when you put him with another group of CEOs who he doesn't know, you notice that the role he plays changes quite dramatically. In fact, the funniest thing I've ever seen is that when you meet a CEO with his or her subordinates, they're always the one making a decision. They're very thoughtful, but they make a decision. But when you put them with a group of peers, they're willing to listen more and they're willing to explore a different role for themselves. And sometimes they become stronger because they have this chance to explore a different role. And I think that's the value of breaking up teams every now and again. So switching gears, and I come back to something that you mentioned earlier. Every organization has its own culture, values, and way of doing things that makes it unique. So what is it about the Mayo Clinic that allows it to practice medicine differently? Yeah, I mean, I've spoken about the values as being important, but it really, it really is important. And it's not just the screensavers and the placards yeah. and what's written, you know, on kind of our documents. It's actually having leaders who embody those values. Um, and within Mayo Clinic, that is, it's, it is a way. And I have to say that if you look at healthcare organizations, probably all over the world, you're going to notice many, many of the same values. Um, the question is, are those, are those right. values expressed? Yes. And so as I came, uh, returned here, um, and as I came here to medical school, that was what, what attracted me to Mayo Clinic, which was not only the spoken values, the written values, but the embodiment of, of the values. And, and so this means that our values are embodied by our leaders and, and even our traditions um, embody these values, you know, kind of our history and where we came from and the growth of the organization. It, it turns this thing that I think as we look at values, each of us, we look at values and we say we identify with them. But on the other hand, uh, sometimes during times like crisis, like we're talking yeah. about, it can be quite difficult to, to exercise some of those values. 
But when we're in organizations that are value value driven, you know, teamwork and respect and integrity, those sorts of things, they they can go out the door if you're not in an organization that is aligned to values. All of a sudden, you're, you're alone. Um, and you're making the decisions by yourself and the integrity doesn't, we've seen organizations where this occurs. Um, but for me here, at, at least at this organization at Mayo Clinic, it is something that really is embodied and reflected upon and measured. And it really helps, I think, uh, helps us take care of patients. So you said something interesting where you said that many medical organizations in the world, clinics and hospitals and so on, they have similar values, but it's not necessarily that they practice them. That is the difference. Yeah, I mean, so Mayo Clinic without its values is just a clinic. I mean, it's just, just any other clinic. It's the values can be a very Potemkin uh, sort of thing where people yeah. are saying it, but not acting it. And so culture for any organization is values plus behavior. It's not just values. It's the values expressed and embodied as the behaviors of the leaders and of, of all colleagues within the organization. If you look at some of the challenges going on in healthcare at the moment, there's always a debate about how it comes in healthcare for the costs being spent and so on. Where do you think the future lies here? I mean, how do you see the practice of medicine evolving? Yeah, that's a great question. Because I mean, I mean everyone is complaining about the healthcare costs. I'm not complaining. I'm just saying it is a topic, right? When we know it's a topic. Yeah, I mean, I think the the way I hope it goes, and think I and I have to think this is the way it's going to go. It's going to go is that we are here to take care of patients, um, yeah. which means our family members, our friends, um, our companies, our organizations. And so the way healthcare is going to go is us to be more effectively able to do that, which means that we're gonna be able to do so um, at a, a cost that is affordable. We're going to be able to do so in a, a manner that has great quality. We're gonna be able to do so um, as we're taking care of individuals and as we're taking care of populations. And I think importantly, and as in any industry, it's that we're going to be able to do this in a way that is also aligned with the well-being of those of us within healthcare who are caring for patients. Because if we're, we're trying to do any of these things and we're doing so at the expense of those of us who are delivering the care, delivering the product, um, you know, within our organizations, it's just not a, a long-term um, viable sort of option. Yes. So let's just step back a minute, Jen. I want to unpack this for the audience a little bit, given their profile and so on. If they were to apply some of the best practices that you've seen the Mayo Clinic use and so on, and that you've deployed in your career, what would be the top three things they could do on Monday morning to improve the way they practice, in this case, business, but the way they manage teams, the way they operate as a leader and so on? What would be those three things? We can start with one and we'll work our way to three. Yeah, I think for a leader, there are times when our expertise is important and we invoke that. We make decisions based on what we know and what our experience yes. is. And that there are other times where we are, and probably more times, where we are facilitators of decisions, where we create environments where groups of individuals with different perspectives, different expertise come together and we make decisions based on that. And so I've seen this at Mayo Clinic and I've seen it in other organizations that, that do well. It, it is the ability for the leaders of these organizations to be able to, to exist in both those realms, to be able to make decisions from their own expertise when needed, but also on the other hand, to be able to facilitate when they're working one-to-one -one with individuals, when they're working with teams of individuals, um, to be able to dodge in and out of that. 
It's interesting you said, yeah, because you talked about leaders who make decisions based on their domain expertise and then leaders who have to be a facilitator where they don't have the domain expertise, but they have the authority to sort of arbitrate a decision. So a lot of people in listening to the podcast, consultants, bankers, and so on, when I speak to clients, they always assume that the reason they are not successful as a leader is because they don't have some domain authority. So when I talk to someone, why is your career not going as well? They always tell me something like, Michael, well, I don't know how to think and plan strategy like a McKinsey partner or something. But it's very often that people don't understand that a lot of leadership is about connecting the right people. It's not just connecting the right people. It's creating an environment where people feel comfortable that the leader is going to listen to them as opposed to override them because they you know, believe that's the way they need to do things. So as a leader who needs to bring the right people together, how does one create that environment in leadership? One of my definitions of leaders are leaders are not necessarily individuals who develop followers, but the leaders are individuals who develop leaders. And so what you're trying to do is create within the organization the ability of each of those within the organization to be able to see things, respond to things uh, in ways that serve the mission of the organization. And so I, th I think that is really a key thing. It's leadership is not creating followers, it's creating other leaders. Yes. And we've seen in organization after organization our ability to deal with just this complex world. One of the key problems we have is developing future leaders. And our, our best leaders, they do that. They develop leaders. I want to go back a little bit to as we were talking about crisis, how you respond to crisis. Yeah. We have leaders who are very good at making decisions in crisis. They, they can stand up like the generals and say, this is what we're going to do and move forward with confidence. And, um, and we have other leaders who tend to be more like affiliative, who want to collaborate and bring people together. Our best leaders embody both of those. And so, for example, the same individual, a leader during a time of crisis, who is effective, steps up, makes decisions, and moves forward um, in, in this area where we don't know what's going to happen, where we're discovering what's going to happen. We need a leader who steps up and makes those decisions. On the other hand, as things progress and it's no longer a crisis, our best leaders are able then to step back and facilitate and, and bring together teams uh, to make decisions more collaboratively. I think in some organizations, this can be a barrier. Certainly, uh, even at, in our own organization, there are department chairs and, and division chairs who do very well, for instance, in that affiliative yeah. scenario, um, and maybe not so well during the, the I have to make a decision sort of scenario. Um, our most effective leaders can do both. They adapt to the situation. That doesn't mean, as they're making collaborative decisions, that the leader is letting others, you know, make the decision. I think that's very much culture dependent, organizationally dependent. Even if the leader is the one who is calling the shots, they still want to be able to facilitate the best kind of finding of, of information and perspective taking and development of shared reality before they make the decision. Um, they're able to do that in a fashion that, that involves teamwork and, and inclusion. I like what you just said. So for the audience, I'm going to sort of paraphrase this a little bit because we've been touching on some points and we're trying to pull it together in a single thread. We seem to be distinguishing between the performance of an organization and the health of an organization because there are leaders who never develop strong leaders, but they make all the decisions themselves. The business can do well for a short time, so it performs well, 
but the business is not healthy in the long term because that performance is not sustainable when that leader, for whatever reason, needs to go away because he's not developed that deep bench to replace him. Is that a good way of thinking about it? Very well said. So let's think about this, right? Because this is an ongoing challenge, I think, with all leaders. And on the one hand, you want to perform well, as everyone wants to. But at the same time, you you need to, I think is a better way to say it, to bring up new leaders, train them, groom them. But people are always worried about being replaced, right? That's really the challenge here. Because everyone's just worried about training. I mean, I've seen this. I've had clients whereby they would groom someone, and when they felt threatened by that person, they would sideline them. They would they would take them off the race for running indirectly, and the person knew they're out of the race, and they would leave the organization. I've seen organizations who were once enormously successful lose lose a bench of leaders, and the organizations are now struggling. I mean, you obviously follow the news; you know what companies I'm talking about. So as a leader, how do you balance that? How do you balance that need to be successful and groom someone and not be replaced? Yeah, I I love this discussion. So I, I, just from a medical perspective, let's say we have residents um, in emergency medicine who as they're they're done with their residency and now they're taking care of patients and they're the, the consultants, they're the attending, yeah. the individual in charge. There can be a sense that they need to know everything, that they yeah. just, that's, they need to have like all the knowledge for any yeah. situation that comes in and how difficult it is to admit when they don't know. And their sense is, is that they, if they express that they don't know what to do in this situation, that maybe they're no longer relevant or they don't have the ability to lead. Yes. Um, I, I think that's a question. Is that true? Or actually, if you admit when you don't know what you're doing in certain times, maybe that elevates your, uh, your, the perspective of your colleagues about your ability to lead, your, yeah. your ability to stand up and say what you know and what you don't know. And I, th I think as you're saying, that's, it can be quite common for leaders to worry about what I'm doing is actually, I'm, if I help develop other leaders, then I become irrelevant. And the question is, is that true? Is that true? And I think that's something to be tested. And I think that what you will identify is that those leaders who develop other leaders, they have many other skills and that skill to be able to develop other leaders is quite precious and actually secures the your potential for the organization and other potentials for other organizations moving moving forward part of the leadership process is looking inwardly and thinking about the ways that you're making sense of the complex world and about your existence in this complex world and all of us have fears the fear that we might be replaceable, the fear that um, we're talking too much, the fear that we're being too quiet, the fear that we don't know how to delegate, the fear, all of these sorts of things occur at leaders at all levels. And I think what we're getting at here is that point, if you're, if you're worried that by developing leaders that you're no longer um, relevant, I think that is a questionable fear that, that can be worked through. Yes. Well, you said two things. I want to touch on it. The one you said that, and if you think you're an expert, people don't want to say they don't know. But I think another thing about this is when you think you're an ex expert, you stop asking questions. Mm. And I think that's the bigger danger here because the way you learn, and you know how science is, we, we make errors, lots of errors, and we're going to figure out why this didn't work, right? That's how science has really progressed for years. It's not as if we fix something correctly the first time and then we figure out how we did it. It's usually trial and error processes. Now, coming back to the point of leadership, right? So we spoke about how leaders need to have this confidence to think about their roles. But doesn't it come down to understanding what is your role 
as a leader, because every organization is different. Every organization is looking for something specific in a leader. I've worked with, for example, CEOs were brought in specifically because they could do M&A deals. This company is going through a major growth phase. They want a leader who can close and integrate. And other times there's an operations disaster. They want a CEO who can get into the operations and tame the business. So it comes down to and let's think about this together, right? So if I'm a leader, and, and I was a leader at one point in a services organization, and I knew that I had to train people because if I don't train them, I'm going to be disappointing my clients, one, which I don't want to do. Two, I'm going to have to be doing more work because if my team is not trained, I've got to step in more to check them. But at the same time, when you train them very well and they do something that's what you consider to be your sense of power for lack of a better word it's kind of a scary feeling i think the first time a junior person had trained junior and in inverted commas stepped in to take over and manage a very important client relationship it was a bit of a scary thing for me because in consulting partners power lies with being close to clients right but then i thought to myself if the client likes this junior partner more the firm benefits the junior partner works with me I just got freed up to meet other clients. I just got on a plane or went to Latin America and started meeting, you know, Chilean and Brazilian clients. So I think what I'm trying to say here is that it's almost like it's like a conveyor belt in the sense that if you are grooming people to replace you, you've got to be the person that you're going to be next. You've got to figure out what's next for you. And no one's going to tell you that. You've got to try to figure out as a leader what's next for me. So you've got to be looking forward for your career and back to see who's going to replace you when you go forward in your career. Is that a good way to think about it? Yeah, and I think if you find something that's working, the question, the, the barrier that so many of us have is how do we scale? And what you're identifying there is an ability to scale. If you're able to develop leaders, if you're able to develop individuals who fill your position, your ability to then to scale to find other opportunities is just increased. And that's that is part of the job is is being able to find ways for the organization to best meet the needs of of our customers. And that is through scaling in many cases. Yeah. And scaling is interesting because when we talk about scaling in business, it means one thing. But in your personal career, you only have so much time in the day. You can't really work more hours. At a certain point, when you're young, you can work more hours, but then it gets pulled back as you get older. So you've got to decide where can I have the biggest impact for the time I have? And it's not the impact that you want to make, it's the impact the organization needs. Because I, I do speak to a lot of leaders and they're always talking to me about what they want to do. And I always come back and say, okay, I know what you want to do, but what does your boss need done? And that's a different question. Or if it's not your boss, what does your organization need done? What is your customers complaining about? So it's about figuring that out. I think a lot of leaders get trapped into their own career path about saying, I'm good at this, I'm good at that. So I want to do X, but it's not a very linear career path. I mean, look at your career path. It, it moved all over the place. In fact, you use a very interesting word, which I liked. And I was going to come back to you. You said you were asked to take a leadership role. You didn't put your hand up. You didn't fight for a promotion, right? Mm -hmm. You were asked to take the leadership role. So in this situation, the organization was looking at you and said, well, there's this challenge we have. This is the guy who can fix it. So they gave it to you. So in this situation, your leadership path was built around what does the organization need because the organization came to you. But a lot of leaders don't do that. They're very inward looking. 
Yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting also in medicine because as a physician, and we need physician leaders, as you as you ask a physician to take a leadership position, especially earlier on, it's not necessarily a funded thing. You're spending yes. more time on top of your day. You still need to take care of the same number of patients, but now you're also adding on this this committee or this meeting. And so the I'd like to say that I was asked because I was, you know, the star that shone shone brightly in the constellation. But in in many organizations, especially within healthcare, we're we're looking for individuals who will step forward and and use some of that discretionary time to to help the the organization evolve and 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 lead things that need to be led. Well, I don't know about you, but when I was a partner, I used to be client facing 100%. So I was really in the office, always moving with clients and working out of regional offices. And the first time I was asked by one of the senior partners, board members to take over an admin function. I actually thought I'm being punished. I mean, like, why are you punishing me? Yeah, right. yeah, I'm doing a good job. What, what did I do? What do you want me to do? <laughs> you actually want me to spend more time in the office heading up marketing but that's like a punishment. And then, you know, we, we spent a lot of time talking together and he explained the fact, the reason he's doing it is because he wants the thinking I have to be institutionalized within the firm. And when he explained it that way, I said, okay, now I understand what you do. It's not a punishment. It sounds like a little bit like a reward. And But the thing is, sitting in an office and working with your peers is a lot more draining than working with clients in my experience because your peers know everything about you. It's very hard to impress them, right? They're at your level. They also work with clients. They know everything. They're also, you know, I don't know what it's like in the world of physicians, but in strategy consulting, every strategy partner thinks he's the best strategy partner in the world and he has nothing more to learn and he knows everything and you can't tell him or her anything. So what I've learned is that your domain expertise of corporate strategy is useless. This is about making relationships with partners who you don't like, you never got along with, and encouraging them to try something new. And it's a difficult work. I mean, you know what admin work is like. It's a, it's, it's a totally different mindset, a totally different skill set, and it can drain you many times because people just don't listen sometimes, and you've got to find multiple ways to make the same argument. It's, you know, people use the word politics, but there's a lot of politics going on there. And I don't mean in a negative sense. It's about understanding someone, knowing what they want, where they want to take things. And just, it's so hard if you've only built your expertise in solving a problem and not building teams. Yeah, I mean, the... This fits very well from a physician perspective and physicians becoming leaders because, so as I go see patients, um, I take a history, do a, a physical exam, and then I write an order, and then things get done. And it's yeah. very much like, okay, next, next patient. Yeah. And I just kind of go through that, and things get done. Okay, so now I'm a physician and I'm in a leadership uh, role or an administrative role. Uh, I've written the order, what's going on? Things aren't yeah. getting done, what's going on? And so the, the timeframes for those are quite different. Um, and the, actually the sense of how to be most effective in those time timeframes is something that people need to grow into which is understanding that that what you what when you're taking care of patients it may take minutes or hours but from the administrative time frame it often takes a more time to develop and to bring other individuals on board and and sometimes these things that you're kind of hitting your head against the wall this um you know you're trying to push the boulder up the hill and it keeps rolling down 
all you need to do is wait a little bit of time, get a little bit more people on, on board, and that hill that you've been rolling the, the rock up um, starts to disappear um, and things become easier. And that sort of pacing and timing, I think, can be a struggle for many of those of us who have these distinct areas of expertise where things get done and we yes. move into this world of administration. Yeah, because the world of administration, it has very difficult outcomes to measure. You know, as a physician, you know, a patient comes in, you're going to do certain things, and it is relatively easier to know what a good treatment was because they would get better, right? They would feel better and so on. But when you're managing a hospital group or a large medical group, beyond the metrics of patient care and possibly finances, there's so many other moving pieces that it's easy to get lost in it. And sometimes you just feel that I've made no progress one month in here. And I'm not sure if anyone's listening to me and I'm not sure if and they're taking it forward. And then you have to keep on meeting people, convincing them. And you're meeting someone who's an expert in their field. They can do that better than anyone else. So you're asking them to modify their behavior even though they know more than you. And that's difficult. I'm sure in the world of physicians, it's even the same because you've got to listen to this expert telling you why they can't modify their behavior. And then you've got to find a workaround to show them how modifying their behavior actually could be better the way they do their work. It's not one speech you give that's going to relate to everyone. I always find it works better where you meet these people one-on-one. -on -one. You've got to find the key people, meet them, get them on your side, and then move around the organization and figure out who else you need to bring onto your side. Is it the same for you? Yes, yeah, so I, I, it's and transitioning out of crisis leadership into just uh, leadership during the space of complexity, where there are many different uh, experts who have have different perspectives about the same um, problems or about new problems. The question is how to bring individuals together yes. and, and share these perspectives, and and that is a, a key thing as you go, as you move from a physician, for example, who is an expert of doing this, writing an order, getting things done, yeah. to now needing to really understand um, wh what is marketing thinking, what is finance thinking, what is this other department thinking, what is, and, and all of those different perspectives, where, whereas initially you thought you knew what to do, um, you know, in a moment, I can you can you can throw anything you want at me, and I can tell you exactly what to do. Um, but that's based on my own blind spots. And so, yes. yeah, these physicians now uh, who are now in leadership positions—that's that's one of the key things—is how do I how do I gain these different perspectives, and how do I use a process that helps me understand the environment a little bit better, so that we can all move together as opposed to just do what I think. Yeah, it's like a little bit like managing a high-performing football team. So, as a coach. Everyone in that field plays better than you. That's a fact, right? Everyone plays better. In fact, some of the best coaches were never good football players, right? That's like a universal fact. So everyone plays better than you. Most of these people are paid more than you as well. They know more things than you could ever know, but somehow you've got to find a way for them to be better than they could have been by themselves. And it almost is never about technical skill. It's about figuring out what motivates them. That is what is going to come down to. You know, I always tell people that if you want to know what a company is really like, forget about their values, look at their incentivization model. If you see the way they incentivize people, you know exactly what they value. Everything else is irrelevant. And if you can see the way a team is being incentivized and you can modify that, 
to get the values you want. And I think that's good leadership as well. Yeah, both sides are both you as a as a leader being able to see the other sides, but then also bringing those on the team together to be able to see all the other sides too. Th those yes. are the organizations, the teams that that do the best. Thank you so much, Richard. I really enjoyed that interview. Is there anything you want to add for our audience before we wrap up? No, I just, I, I appreciate each of you who is a leader. I mean, it, it is so difficult. It, it is, is so hard. difficult. It is such a process of personal development as much as it is developing others as you stick yourself out there and make decisions and some things don't go well. And, but yet it's also such a wonderful time to be so much better and be to work on our, our own effectiveness. That's yes. yeah. Thank you so much. No, thank you. I also think we're in a time in the world whereby there's a deeper appreciation for more diverse models of leadership. It wasn't like that 20 years ago, even 30 years ago. And now the world is open to different kinds of leadership. So it is a great opportunity. And as you say, it's hard work. So I'm also appreciative of all the leaders out there. Richard, it was a great pleasure. One of our best podcasts, I think. And I'm sure the audience is going to love it. And I hope to have you back on the show soon. Thank you very much. Take care. Ciao. Bye-bye. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.